Hello and welcome to the Mostly Weather Podcast. My name is Doug McNeil, I'm hosting today and with me are regular podcasters, Claire Whittam. Hello. And Neil Robinson. Hello. And we also have special guest today, John Kennedy. Hello. So today we'd like to be talking about taking the temperature of the earth. And if you hadn't guessed, John is our local expert on the science of taking the temperature of the earth. So would you like to just talk a bit briefly, John, about your role in the Met Office, what you do? Um, Yeah, so I have a couple of roles. Um, The first one is I work on the data that we use to kind of keep track of what's going on around the world in the climate. Um, So mostly looking at temperature data sets. So people talk about the global average temperature. That's based on kind of the research we're doing, um, kind of assembling historical observations, processing them, kind of turning them into stuff that people can use. Um, so that's kind of half of what I do. The other half is looking at that data and trying to turn it into something intelligible. Um, what is happening? Why is it happening? Well, why does it matter? Why should anyone care about the temperature of the Earth? Things like this. Okay, great. So, um, so let's start, I guess, at the beginning. So... Um, this this is a this is a really climate special. So really, we're talking about um, longer term monitoring, aren't we? We're talking about the sort of century scale, long term records um, of temperature that we're interested in. And and what kind of um, measurements are we taking? What are we looking at in order to understand those long term uh, measurements? The longest term things, it's just thermometers, <laughs> kind of in various forms. So thermometers, you want you know, a bit of mercury and glass and that kind of thing. If you go way back, they made thermometers out of whatever whatever they could get hold of at the time, and it's kind of evolved a little bit. Um, but the majority of the record is based on kind of mercury and glass thermometers. So how long have we been measuring temperature with thermometers then? Ooh, I, I should have looked up, actually. <laughs> I thought to do this when the thermometer was invented. So the longest records we have go back to like the 1600s, thereabouts. So the Central England Temperature Series is kind of something we're quite proud of. Yeah, maintaining here, but that starts in 1659. Okay, so that's a, that's a unbroken kind of record of observations of temperature for places in England, basically for a few hundred years. Almost unbroken. Almost unbroken. <laughs> At some point, it kind of lapses into Dutch data. There's, there's a gap where there's no UK records. Really, I didn't know that. Okay, is there a reason for that that we know of? Um, we just the central England temperatures. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of cobbled together in the early part from diaries and things that people were keeping. Um, oh, I didn't realise that. I assumed it was some sort of organised thing by a university or something like that. Because we should say that this record is way older than the Met Office or kind oh, of God, official yeah. government kind of records. So, yeah, so what kind of people was it that was taking the, taking the temperature? It's kind of posh people who had thermometers in spare time. Gentlemen scientists. <laughs> Of various kinds, yeah. I don't, I don't know exactly who who was involved. It's if you go and read the papers, there's kind of it's quite a detailed historical delve into those records and piecing things together. Um, okay, so that's from a bunch of different sites around England, from a bunch of different people measuring it with different equipment. Not even always England. Sometimes you know the Dutch, like you say. So presumably, it's like it's quite hard to make those standardised and make those all comparable to each other, right? Yeah, that, so the guy Manley was a, the chap who put it all together sometime mm. in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And um, he, he kind of, it's held together with like duct tape a little <laughs> bit in the early parts. Um, but he, he was kind of aware of that limitation. So he rounded things to kind of whole degrees and things like this. Right, yeah. He was quite kind of open about the uncertainties in that early part of the record. So is that a big part of what you do then is 
trying to take lots of different measurements and, and standardize them in some way and make them all intercomparable. Yeah, that, that is the so if we're looking at the longest term, longest time scale changes in global temperature, those are the real problems. It's the kind of changes in technology over that mm. period and kind of how you reconcile all those different temperature measurements to get something that's consistent. Um, plus, here we should, I guess we should um, break in a little bit there, John, and, and say in the instrumental record we're talking about here, because as we've talked in this podcast in the past about um, comparisons with paleoclimate mm. and using other kinds of records, you know, yeah, so as a uh, reminder, tree rings and things like that. Yeah, paleoclimate, stuff like tree rings and ice cores, it goes back far, far longer. Yeah, so we yeah. have a different sort of temperature record much further into the past. We're talking about direct observations here, yeah. Yeah, actual direct So, so presumably for you, your guys, it was a, a game changer when the satellites started measuring temperature. Um, it's kind of, yeah, the satellites are amazing because they give you this kind of global view of things, but they come with a whole raft of their own problems. I mean, they only see the surface when there's no cloud, yeah. Um, so yeah. that, that instantly isn't. It doesn't just mean you get less data. It also biases the data you get, right? So the temperature might tend to be different when there's no cloud, and that's something you need to be able to figure out and calibrate for, I suppose. Yeah, that's one of the many problems that yeah. have. So you're also looking through the whole atmosphere. If you're trying to measure the surface temperature, you've got everything that's in the atmosphere between the satellite and that surface that's mm. kind of giving radiation up to the satellite and. That can really affect the temperatures. If you have aerosols, like particles from volcanoes, things like this, then uh, that can really affect the temperature measurements from satellites. So you need to take all of this into account when you're calculating the temperatures from the satellite data. Okay, so plenty of work to do. <laughs> yeah, it's ongoing. <laughs> so you, do you specifically focus on surface temperature then? Because this has come up in the last, um, the last few years, hasn't it? That We tend to talk about the temperature of the Earth and actually, it's very easy to just to talk about the surface temperature of the Earth as the temperature of the Earth. But in fact, there's lots of kind of subtleties about that because there's heat in the oceans and there's heat in the different parts of the atmosphere. So are you focused on the surface or do you do other parts as well? Um, I focus on the surface. The, the nice thing about the surface is we have very long records. Mm. Um, for the ocean temperatures, they start to kick in kind of start of the 20th century. And then you don't get really good measurements until the second half of that the century. Um, and... For the kind of the troposphere, the upper atmosphere, we have measurements from weather balloons going back to the fifties or thereabouts. Yeah. There's kind of some scattered stuff before, um, so that they they're all kind of coming together to tell us a kind of holistic picture of what's going on in the climate. And we need all of those elements to give kind of a complete view of what's going on and how it affects things. But yeah, my focus has been on that long-term surface temperature. And so are we still sort of fairly reliant on surface thermometers at the end of the day to really make sure you have a long, consistent record? It's sort of, you know, we have all this wonderful new technology, but actually the the good old thermometer, I guess in there's some, you know, newfangled version, but it's still a real primary tool in, in understanding climate around the world. Oh, yeah. For, for the land temperatures, it's just thermometers in boxes still. Really? <laughs> the thermometers okay. have become, they're kind of lots of them are automated now, so they're electronic sensors, but... Really, a thermometer in a box is the standard. Um, I mean, that's a direct measurement, isn't it, yeah. of what you're actually trying to get information for. Okay, so we've had a really interesting question. This discussion is really interesting in the context of this question, one of the motivating questions for this podcast, um, from a listener, Stephen in Cornwall. Thanks very much for your question, Stephen. And Stephen says, uh, In recent weeks, I've been thinking about all of this regarding the world's weather and wondered what the most common weather condition is globally at any single point in time. So, for example, if at 
10 o'clock GMT, everyone in the world tweeted what their weather was like in their respective locations, what weather condition would be most common? Okay. So, so I love this question. That's a cool question. That's great. And we, I think we should answer this over a period of time because it's a hard question. Yeah, the, cool, the reason I love this question so much is because there's so many different ways you could answer it. There's definitely no right answer, right? There's definitely no right Well, I, <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of different answers. So, so Stephen goes on and says, um, okay, he's thinking about sort of visible weather conditions like snow or cloud or whatever, and not so interested in things like temperature, um, and definitely interested in, you know, over the land or, or where the people are, and uh, not so much um, over the sea surface. So in true contrary fashion, um, Mostly Weather po- Podcast is basically going to talk about the opposite stuff this time than Stephen is interested in, in, you know, in the true spirit of completeness. And we'll, c- we'll, come, to, we'll come to some of those other things, I think, later on in, in, in future episodes. So just it's useful to have the, this motivating question. Thanks very much for emailing us. And do email us, um, uh, Mostly Weather, um, at metoffice.gov.uk or tweet us mw underscore podcast or we'll go through our individual uh, um, twitter handles later on if you've got any questions for the podcasters um, but I'd, I, I've gone away and done a little bit of work on this um, oh, well done Doug I know I, it's caught so, your imagination so it's caught my imagination data is out there right so the my initial is reaction there. is that this is like driven by the population centres presumably well, if I, we're I, talking I, about the average weather for a person it's going to be the weather in India or the weather in China right? it, in fact if it, looking at this population density map which I've I've uh, created in front of me it's it's those things yeah, yeah absolutely so it's it's look it's going to be hot and it's going to be cloudy and possibly <laughs> smoggy right that's yeah. the, um, the it's incredible um, how many people are in the crescent, essentially underneath the Himalayas. Mm. Um, I've, I've just seen the plot. I googled the same thing actually, yeah. and uh, there's one picture online somewhere which is uh, basically a circle over kind of central Southeast Asia, and it basically says more people live within this circle than live outside of it. That's right. Which blew my mind. I, you know, I, you know, there's people. loads of people in India and, as you say, China, but to realise that. Yeah, the whole of the rest of the globe has less yeah, people. The human experience is kind of hot and cloudy and, uh, and so, tropical, yeah. Yeah, so also more people live in cities now than live in urban areas. Well, this, so that's interesting. So, the, so that, that the, actually affects the, the weather they experience. The right? weather, so not only do the cities affect the weather and the temperatures and whatever, but also people live indoors. So, you know, the weather they're experiencing is, is, is mostly indoor weather, I guess. So, so, like, you know. so should we talk just very quickly about why living in a city makes the weather different? So I'm thinking about this thing called the urban heat island effect, which I suspect is one it's thing you think an awful lot discussion. about, is it? It is. Um, <laughs> so when, we, when I heard this question, my mind went the same way about people live in cities. And we put a lot of effort into removing the effects of cities from our data sets. So what are the effects of cities then? Um, so the urban heat islands is basically, <laughs> there's a, an island of heat that surrounds a city. If you kind of drive a car through a city with a thermometer, the temperature will kind of increase, particularly at night. Um, effect during the day is a bit different. And it depends and is that, on is that because of heating leaking out of houses, or is it because that the sort of the building topography shelters kind of streets and things? You know, it's not as flat. Or what, what do we think the main effect is then of the urban heat island, or that causes the urban heat island? I'm not entirely sure actually. 
partly depends on the size of the city and how much waste heat there is. Like yeah. Somewhere like Tokyo, where you've got a huge amount of energy being used, mm. there is a lot of direct heat from air conditioners. There's a lot of, sort of black surfaces as well, isn't there? I suppose. It's not just there's a lot of concrete. There's a lot of concrete. Yeah. So it, it's got high heat capacity, so it's going to store heat and then release it overnight. I think, yeah, that, I think, I think all of those things that you mentioned, Neil, it's a complex is my understanding. Thing. Yeah. But also humans, you know, giving out. They get, yeah, they're hu- like the Matrix. Humans know. are hot, right? Humans are hot and they yeah. do... I know it's it's non-trivial in some cities. Is my understanding. So, but the point is, this is an empirical observation, right? We know, as you say, like anybody who drives in from. I live in the countryside outside Exeter, and when I drive in, it always heats up a, a couple of degrees. And this is, you know, we just measure the urban heat island effect. So that's something that we'd spend a lot of time removing from this data, right? Yeah, because cities are where people live, but they they cover quite a small fraction of the Earth's surface. Yeah. So if you want something that's representative of the global temperature, not kind of human experience temperature then cities are quite a minor thing but lots of stations and the other thing is that cities have sprawled right so there's some stations that become more cityfied over time so now you've got this horrible sort of trend that you need to take out of that particular station as well right yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is what i mean about um i mentioned earlier about stations kind of being not in exactly the right places for measuring climate yeah so what we want for that is something that's kind of stays exactly the same over hundreds and hundreds of years but this never happens because the earth changes mm. so you have to make some adjustments to the data to kind of try and recover what the earth did rather than kind of what actually happened at that particular mm. station so how would you know how would you know for example um if a, how much a city has has uh, sort of changed that trend if there's a background warming trend going on you think there's a background warming going on due to sort of co2 input into the atmosphere and there's a city encroaching on your on your space of your station how are you how are you going to find out what the bias of the, the city is and pull those things apart i was going to say that it was an inter- it was interesting your question there you were asking about and you think that co2 would have had an effect on it and how do you measure that but actually the interesting thing is the way you measure the effect of the co2 is by doing physical modeling right the way you measure the natural uh you know I guess we need to like model all the different contributions and effects uh, from first order, and then try and remove them, and then you you know you get left with the stuff that you can't explain any other way. So 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 definitely modelling is important, but I I mean you're going to have other stations, right? There's going to be a station down the road uh, which hasn't seen the city, and then you, you use know, a statistical nearby. model to get to estimate how much the effect of the urban stuff is on the. That's one down my understanding. The road. Is that is, that's a terribly naive view of these <laughs> things, but I'm I'm hoping that's that's somewhere close to what we're doing. Yeah, that's the basic intuition, is that you compare a station that has changed with one that you think hasn't, and you can see step changes in, in those comparisons, and you use those to statistically remove the effects. Um, but, of course, you've got a network of stations where everything's mm. changing, and they, they move for various reasons. Like someone will sell the land the station's on, so it'll have to move down the road. So there are changes for those reasons as well, and it's all happening all the same time. But, I mean, it might be worth highlighting something that you mentioned there, which is that you don't do this by looking at the two stations and then, you know, taking an educated guess at what's going on, right? We have very complicated statistical models and statistical algorithms that sort of do a similar thing, but on a huge multi kind of interconnected scale between all the observations we've got. So there's some really in, sort of intense mathematics goes into correcting for these uh, these trends, right? Yeah, it's and it's not just one method. People have tried like lots of different ways of doing this. Yeah. Um, and they all come to slightly different answers, but you know the the overall warming is something that's quite clear. So I was going to ask about this: like, how do you know that you've done it right? <laughs> because, because <laughs> in a way, the observations are a lot of the time what we use for 
kind of you know we have we we have this sort of term of truth in inverted commas you know the the closest thing to the the actual measured state that we use in our modeling to try and figure out what's going on and i guess what you're saying is that lots of people figure out similar truths similar data sets in different methods you know in different groups you know the americans will do it and we'll do it here and other people will do it and then we we can see how similar or different they are right that's one element of it yeah so consistency across a whole bunch of different methods kind of suggests that the results are robust but there are other tests that people have done so you can build kind of fake worlds which look you think like the real world and then you can apply your algorithms to those and see if you get back to this is a computer model reality. right yeah yeah something like a computer model and you mess it up to look like the real world the real world's messy right and then you unmessify it using your algorithms and see if you get back what you put in so you'll, you'll model a whole world and then you'll sample it at typical places for for observations and you'll add noise in and you'll add drift and you'll you'll just do all kinds of stuff to the data and then see if you can get rid of it again yeah and the algorithms are they're pretty good at doing this they you know there are situations where it's very difficult if you've got lots of stations moving all at the same time then there's no way you can kind of completely recover all the signal, but it kind of pushes you in the right direction. This is what they find. And the other thing that people do is there are actually networks which are climate quality networks. In the States, they have a climate reference network. And this is a thing of beauty. They've kind of got these stations and they've put them in national parks and areas where they're not going to change. They're kind of guaranteed to kind of last a relatively long time. Yeah, there must be some stations that are relatively unaffected. I remember when I used to do field work, they've got a, a station on top of Jungfraujoch in the, in the Alps in Europe. And, you know, there's not much urbanisation around there. <laughs> so you'd like to think that long-term records like that are relatively consistent. Well, this gets to another thing. How many stations do we need in order to know that, say, the globe is warmed, right? Now, like, how, how many do you need? Do you need? How many good records do you need? Do you need one? We probably need more than one, right? <laughs> We've, I mean, central England temperature is approximately one. <laughs> but uh, but the, the England is a, such a tiny fraction of the globe. How, how many have you got a, a rough idea john have you got like kind of estimate how many you'd need that's putting you on the spot sorry phil jones did this calculation right in the 1990s phil jones answered every question in the 1990s <laughs> it seems like between him and david parker they've kind of got everything covered oh D- david uh, is our colleague who retired from the met office last week at yeah. after 48 years service which i think is pretty astounding <laughs> so just to put that in context yeah um and it's a surprisingly small number actually if you've got decent quality stations where the, the, the environment's not changing around them, kind of about 200 stations will give you a pretty good estimate of global temperature change on a decadal timescale. Wow. So you'll be able to pick up those broad-scale features. And for those of us that don't know anything about where these measurements are taking place, is that evenly spread around the global land mass? Yeah, ideally. Okay. So you, you need to kind of think a bit about where they're going to go. You can't just put them all in. Europe, which is yeah, where yeah. they started off. Or all in the Northern Hemisphere, that yeah. you need to spread them out. And Sorry. and I was going to say, so they're all on the land, so I'm just thinking this through. So we've got about 200 stations, nice and evenly spread across the land, so we're getting an estimate of the average land temperature from that, are we? Which translates as the average Northern mid-latitude temperature, Northern Hemisphere. So every time you look at an observer... Does it? Yeah, because the, there's more. Where's that? That's, I where, that's where all the land is. Yeah, that's where all the land is. So, like, there's a. Whenever you look at the historical record of any observation, it's horrendously biased to Europe and then America, and then it starts to open up. But um, yeah, I mean, things like the poles and the southern oceans are these these sort of historically they've been measured much less, right? And and that makes them. And even now they're tricky to measure, and they're pretty inhospitable places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if you try and measure stuff over Antarctica, then the 
your stations get buried under snow and, and ice and things <laughs> like that. It's just practical issues that, you know, are hard to overcome, aren't they? There's some great work going on, some of our colleagues um, looking at the logs from uh, it's the, some of the old weather crowd that we've talked about before and some of the logs. They're basically doing data rescue from the, the great age of sort of heroes who went out <laughs> and explored Antarctica. So that's, that's worth Googling and looking at. Have we had Philip on the show? We had Philip on, on, on number one. It would probably be worth getting him Number one, yeah. So go back and listen to the first episode if you've not episode. heard it. But this is getting members of the public. You can help do this at, is it oldweather.com? Yeah. To tr- help transcribe ship's logs and the weather records and ship's logs from, you know, 100 years ago, which is actually really useful information. Okay, so we've got our land surface temperatures, say. We've got, we've got these 200 idealised... Um, uh, stations uh, and we're measuring that but I understand John you're particularly sort of uh, expert in looking at sea surface temperatures and, and the question I wanted to ask you was explain to me why buckets are important when it comes to measuring <laughs> global temperature I know they are but if, if I could hear it for me that would be great <laughs> my first day at the Met Office when they explained to me what I was going to do working here they said you're going to be studying buckets <laughs> I was like what have I got myself into here <laughs> you drew the short straw but for, yeah for like the longest time, and we still do it now, sea surface temperature has been measured by throwing a bucket over the side of a ship, hauling up some water to the deck and sticking a thermometer in it. Um, and that was the standard method in the 19th century. So they had buckets on ships, like wooden buckets for various tasks, and they tie a rope on the deck. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. some, some tasks you don't want to know about as well. But. <laughs> <laughs> So they would throw these over the side and haul up a, a sample of water and stick a thermometer in. And that's okay. not a bad way to do it with a wooden bucket. If you're careful, if you let the bucket soak for a long time in the water, so yeah. the temperature of the bucket... And make sure it's not evaporating too fast, presumably. Well, there's all kinds of pitfalls, right? The other thing is, like, defining surface temperature is non-trivial. Are we talking, like, a centimetre above the top of the waves or the skin of the surface or, like, an inch down or a foot down? Because they're all different temperatures, right? Yeah, the, the near-surface structure of the oceans is pretty complex yeah. trying to measure the temperature because on a calm day with like strong sunshine on the surface you can get a layer of water about 30 centimeters deep that's a few degrees warmer than the water below that so if you're kind of throwing a bucket in and skimming the surface water then you're going to get a different measurement than if you kind of dunk that thing down a meter and scoop up some water and if it's windy the ship's moving you're kind of going to get slightly different measurements and a lot of work recently kind of going back to satellites, reconciling satellite measurements with buckets and other types of sea surface temperature measurement is that the satellites are really measuring the top micrometer, mm-hmm. micrometer of the, the water. Mm-hmm. So that infrared radiation is coming from the very, very surface. It's super. So that, that's going to be, that could be really different, couldn't it? Degrees or tenths of a degree or what kind of difference are you talking between that and, say, a metre down? Um, about, well, if you go down to the deepest sea surface temperature measurements we make from ships, which are about 20 metres depth, then you can see about five degree difference between that and the absolute wow. surface. So it really depends what sort of question you're trying to answer as to which is more important. So I guess from a weather forecasting perspective, the surface temperature is possibly key. But for your climatological studies, actually the day-to-day variation is all you're trying to get rid of, I'm assuming. And, and it's the slightly lower down temperature that's much more consistent that's more important. Or again, does it then does it matter for climatological as well? Um, I think... We've kind of glossed over this a little bit in the past because it's quite hard because things have changed so much. But it's kind of settling down to you pick one and stick with it. Okay, yeah. Um, so you, you can kind of transfer, you can kind of estimate 
a temperature at a certain depth from another one based on I was going to say model. this the good news is this is all governed by the laws of physics which we know so so it must be possible to go between them a little, to a certain extent right yeah so a lot of work has been done trying to model those top 20 meters or so of the water column and yeah. Yeah. so you could just visualize a, a graph effectively that joins those temperature points and as long as you understand that enough you can then work out the height and the temperature from a I'm simplifying it obviously but to a, a graph with a curve on it. <laughs> it's pretty much it, actually. Yeah. Some of the simplest methods do do that. It's just a simple empirical relationship between depth and temperature. Oh, wow. There are more complex ones now as well. So we started with wooden buckets, right? Are we still using wooden buckets? Things, things have changed as we've gone through time. Is that right? Do you want a history of buckets? Yeah, go on. Because <laughs> <laughs> what happens because of the history of buckets gets interesting, right? I think that's, yeah. that's the key here. So one of the biggest difficulties kind of systematic errors in measurements of global temperature is around buckets because in the early period they use wooden buckets but if you're standing on a ship that's moving fast and you're hauling a heavy wooden bucket it's quite a dangerous thing to do and it also swings against the side of the ship and causes all sorts of problems so they started using canvas buckets instead they're lighter they're kind of easier to heft around but a canvas bucket is not so well insulated so you get back to this problem of kind of how representative is that measurement of the actual surface. If you're hauling it up a 30-metre side of a ship and the wind's blowing and it's going to cool that water down by evaporation, when you stick your thermometer in, you're like half a degree cooler than the actual sea surface. Half a degree, really, just by pulling it up through a windy condition. Yeah. Yeah. Over the Gulf Stream in winter, you can get, like... A guy called Brooks in the 1920s did this on a ship crossing the Atlantic. You saw a 10-degree temperature difference between the sea surface temperature measurement. This is Fahrenheit now. And the actual measurement at the deck of the ship. That's incredible. Yeah. That's huge, yeah. yeah. You get huge sea temperature differences between the air and the sea. And at those times, you can get quite large errors. Oh. So a lot of work has gone into kind of adjusting for these kinds of problems in the data. And so that, mat- that matters basically if, if you've gone from wooden buckets to canvas buckets. If, you've, if everybody suddenly changed, then you're going to see a jump in your data yeah. and you're going to have to remove that. But okay. it, it happened gradually. So nothing ever happens easily. If it had just happened overnight, then yeah, maybe you could kind of see, see, it. see that it. half a degree step and just remove it easily. But people kind of evolved over time. So buckets got fa- wooden buckets got phased out and canvas buckets got phased in. And then they, they kind of they knew about the problems at the time. So they started kind of innovating. So their canvas buckets became more and more technologically advanced, if you like. <laughs> okay. Did they write this down at the time? Tell me they wrote it down mostly (laughs) so this is always the big difficulty is kind of tying what was written down to what was actually done on the ship um so people would say these buckets are no good i've designed a better one but then there's no record of how many of those were sold how many were deployed and things like this so you have to go and look at the data i guess it's at the time you know because presumably this was done routinely on navy ships and things like that was it or um it's done on all sorts of ships so they have this voluntary scheme where ships would make measurements in return for kind of information about navigation charts, which was one use of early sea surface temperatures, Um, but also later on for forecasts, because the sea surface temperature is important for getting your forecast right, Mm. and ships depend very heavily on forecasts for their safety and and kind of navigation and things. Are we we still taking measurements by buckets? Have I... uh, Am I jumping ahead and thinking we must be doing something different now? Or, you know, I guess forecasting... How long have we been using buckets? Some... Buckets are still out there being used. Yeah, really? um, yeah. So I think so that's probably cool from a, a consist- data consistency point of view, right? You want to make sure somebody's still using a bucket. Yeah, but if it's one shift, it's not much use. Oh, right. but, so yeah, it, 
in the middle of the 20th century, it became kind of obvious that this was time-consuming and dangerous thing to do sometimes. So they started going to the engine rooms of the ships instead and sticking thermometers in the kind of the inlet pipe where they're taking water in to cool the ship's engines, refrigerate cargo and things like that. And that's got a whole set of different problems. I was going to say, that <laughs> sounds, sounds like it could be dodgy. So it's amazing, really, that there's all these different confounding factors that we're talking about, but still separate groups manage to take separate techniques to, to try and you know, standardise them and get anywhere near the same signal coming out. It's actually a really impressive sort of feat of science, I think. So I want to ask now what we use it for, right? Well, this temperature series, this magic temperature yeah. series that takes loads of work. Yeah, why, do, why do we care? Yeah, yeah, why do we care? I mean, so there's one pretty obvious reason, right, which is that this has helped inform the, the climate change debate. So maybe... Do you want to talk about how it's used particularly for that and other things that we might not have thought of that the surface temperature is used for? This is a kind of tricky question. <laughs> so I guess we use it for, like, modelling. It's pretty central to modelling climate, right? It's one of the biggest data sets we've got to help figure out if our climate models are, are good or not and test them against reality. Yeah, it, it's a long series, and it's one that's reasonably well measured compared to some other things. And we live at the surface of the Earth, right? <laughs> So for temperatures over land, that's kind of affects loads of things that we do. Um, kind of day-to-day life, what you dress, what crops you grow, things like this are all affected by the temperature and temperature changes. Um, and the sea surface temperature is particularly important for kind of forecasting and things like that. The oceans change slowly and they kind of tend to drive the atmosphere. So understanding historical changes in the sea surface temperature tells something about kind of seasonal forecasting and those kind of near-term drivers of weather and things like that so it's just something that people have been measuring for a long time i guess so when we make climate models doug we we test them against all kinds of observations you know we verify climate models with humidity and all kinds of things right but it just so happens that surface temperature is one that's been measured a long time and it's quite i mean it's quite literally sensible right we can feel the temperature we can sense the temperature changing it really affects us it really affects us it's, it's as john says it's important for our day-to-day lives it's important for um ecosystems it's important for uh, the surface of the planet i guess um but it's also you, you get back to the climate models neil it's also important for the kind of the the energy balance with, mm. uh, making sure that we know where the energy is coming into the system or where it's going out that our models are kind of correct in, in, in that and uh, and yeah, so so um, so it's interesting. A lot of the models, uh, people think that we've tuned them to um, see the global mean surface temperature rise over the last 150 years. Mm. And some of them, sometimes we we haven't. Some a lot of them we haven't. So people tend to um, uh, put the models together, and then out of that comes this sort of rise. And then if you so get the, that, you know that. You're so on the, the flagship right model at the Met Office hasn't been tuned to the observations right is that fair to say well it's i think that i think what it's tuned to or what it can be tuned to is um smaller observations if you like if you if you get all the little details right and then put it all together you tend to get a, a larger picture which is right so if you're doing things for the right reason you're talking about sort of parameterizing physical effects yeah like yeah if you're okay. getting the if you're getting the core physics right uh, and you put it all together, you should get the, the large-scale picture. So, so that's stuff like saying, you know, when we observe, uh, you know, I don't know, water evaporating uh, it changes temperature at this rate, and that's the kind of parameterization yeah, that we I will know. have in the model, as opposed to tuning it to the kind of sets that John's ta- talking about. Um, it, yeah, yeah, essentially. I mean, I, mean, um, I guess over, over, we've been talking about 
this iconic graph of temperature going up, the global mean surface temperature has gone mm. up uh, a degree over the last 150 years. It's approximately correct, isn't it? We're nearly at a degree. What's the IPCC say? It's like... 0.87 degrees 0.8, or something since the start or, or, um, of the century or something like if that. You ta- if you take it for this year or something, it's, it's a degree higher than it started. And so that number has been derived from all the sorts of data sets that John's been talking about. That's well, where that's John, coming from. Yeah, I think, I, I think um, a lot of your data is spatial, though. So I'm talking about aggregating everything up, collecting it up in one number per year, say, and then and then you see that rise over time. But, but John, you're, you, you've also got lots of data sets which are spatial, aren't they? So you get a map, essentially, of, of changes in temperature or temperature. Yeah, um, so th- that one global average number hides a lot of interesting local variability. Um, okay. the, the land warms more than the oceans. Certain parts of the ocean warm more than each other. Certain parts of the land have warmed a lot more than others. Yeah. So the when Arctic, you say the land warms more, the, more than the oceans, this is like the surface again, right? Is that yes. fair? Well, the air near the surface, if we're being pedantic. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just saying, you know, this this is a really complicated system. This is why we sort of, um, the nomenclature sort of gets moved away from climate change, sorry, from global warming, uh, which is really nonspecific and actually just is quite like short-sighted into climate change, which takes all these different parts of the interconnected system into account, you know. Climate change is about more than just the surface temperature going up, it's about the way that ocean currents change and the way that the composition and chemicals in the atmosphere change in reaction to all these things happening and you know a whole host of things right so is is it worth saying that just to finish off what we were saying just now about climate models so the way they're they're verified is we take all the laws of physics that we understand and that we've tested and we put those into a model and we try and recreate what's happened in the past and then we see if that's similar to the kind of records that John's been sorting out. And this is how we, we test. And, and then we can turn on and off different physical effects. So the obvious one is to take uh, anthropogenic carbon dioxide, take man-made carbon dioxide out of the model and see if we get the answer right or not. And that's, you know, very, you know, very simply, that's the way that we try and figure out if man-made carbon dioxide matters or not. Because when we don't have it in the model, we don't recreate the stuff John's seen. And when we do, we do. That's right, and that those those local patterns that we were talking about just a minute ago become crucial. So if you see the land warm more than the oceans, you know you're on the right track. If you see mm. the poles warm, because the poles have warmed a lot more, particularly the, the the northern hemisphere, the Arctic, we've seen a lot of uh, um, a lot less sea ice in the in the um, in the summer in the Arctic summer or the end of the Arctic summer. You see a lot less sea ice. If you're getting all of those things right, then you know you're kind of on the right lines. Um, and there's not. Am I right in saying there's not a huge amount of information, actual information, in this one iconic graph of of temperatures going up and up? It's pretty useful to to see what's going on, but there's a lot behind that, um, which is which is important for making sure that we're we're on the right lines in studying the climate mm. system. So that number, yeah, is a gross oversimplification. And if you want to know what's happening in, in your neighbourhood or your country, you need to be looking at these longer term climate records for your specific area, like we were talking about at the start. Well, I, underst- I understand, John, that you were, have been involved in um, some of the state of the climate work and in creating these graphs of, of these other systems, which, which have changed over time as well. Would you like to talk about that? Which, which systems were you, were you creating these graphs of? Systems. Yeah, like uh, like I've seen the sea ice one and oh, yeah, um, yeah. So people measure a whole bunch of stuff, and I think Kate Willett's done a lot more kind of looking at systems. There are now hundreds of data sets. We kind of 
living in really kind of a nice period for kind of studying the climate because there's all these amazing satellite data sets and things like this. And sticking all of that together is kind of an epic feat because you're kind of looking at stuff that's produced in centres all around the world um, in a whole bunch of different formats, different lengths of series and all kinds of different information. Um, so I've, I've been looking at particularly as kind of different ways of measuring temperature. So the sea surface temperature, temperature over land, temperature beneath the surface of the oceans, kind of throughout the full depth, temperature of the atmosphere, um, things that connect to temperature like um, ice on land, uh, glaciers losing mass as temperatures increase, and sea ice, all these things that are connected to temperature, and you kind of you can see a sort of temperature signal in them. Um, lakes is another one, lakes yeah. are warming up. And you kind of synthesize all this information and they kind of cross check each other. Yeah. Um, so you're seeing the same kind of signals in, in all of these things you would expect to. Yeah. And I'm guessing you're not seeing the contrary signal, right? You're not seeing, oh, glasses are increasing even though. Or do you get one of those every so often? But yeah. Well, the world's a big and complex place, right? Um, Antarctic sea ice is always the one that has kind of stuck out because Arctic sea ice has been declining kind of quite markedly over the past 30 or so years of the satellite record. Antarctic sea ice has been kind of going up going down a bit um at the moment it's quite low um but recently it's been it's kind of been higher but if you look at temperatures in the southern oceans they're cooler than the rest of the world they haven't warmed quite so much actually cooled a little bit since the kind of early kind of climatology period we call it 61 to 90 kind of average they've cooled a bit since then so the global average temperature hides lots of these different things and kind of makes it sim- seem simpler than it actually is but yeah that's an interesting point though you know it's like it's a huge, interconnected, complicated, wonderful world, right? And uh, and these 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 signals that we get out are, are kind of the big picture things. And you know, it's like saying that oh well, you know, glacial ice is declining, so every single patch of ice that I've ever seen should now be smaller than it was before. But there was ice on the road this morning in uh, in Bradninch, right? You know, and it, it, that's taking it to the extreme, isn't it? But there will be, I presume, there's glaciers in some parts of the world have got bigger right the fact of the matter is that on average there's a strong signal that most are getting smaller that's important to appreciate right it's a complex system and these are these are average signals yeah i've i've seen i've seen that story written in the papers it's cold outside and therefore global warming isn't true and of course we expect you know cold once in a while it's pretty cold out there today folks in time of recording Okay, well, um, I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, But I'd like to say thanks very much to our guest, John Kennedy, um, and to Neil and Claire. And um, if you want to get in contact, then you can contact me on Twitter at Doug McNeil or Neil. Yeah, I am at Neil H. Robinson, I think. Um, And I'm at Claire S. Whitten. Or you can get in contact with us uh, mostly by there at metoffice.gov.uk. Um, or mw underscore podcast and i think john you've are you on twitter are you happy to be uh to be contacted on twitter or are you not happy to be contacted Actually, on twitter? i've got another question for john how did you come up with your twitter handle <laughs> can you remind what it is because i can't remember it's my sphere boggis it's my sphere boggis yeah <laughs> my cat when i was growing up was called boggis i and, see um mice did not fear boggis boggis feared mice <laughs> it's the most useless cat you've ever seen it's also a pretty memorable twitter handle yeah, so we a- should we should memorize that but uh Uh, Many thanks again to John, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.